Great, praise God. If uh, you could open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Let's just pray as we uh, open up God's word together. Father, we bless your name today. Lord, we come uh, longing for heavenly bread. We come longing for the food, the manna from heaven, Lord, which would fill us and sustain us in our walk with Jesus. Lord, we need your word this morning. We pray that you would give us insight. We ask God you would give us understanding. Father, we pray that our hearts would be prepared to receive the word with meekness, that the word of God would be implanted in us. God, that it would grow up and it would bear fruit within us for the glory of your name. Jesus, be glorified in our presence today. Spirit of God, would you come? Would you come and fall afresh on us today? We need you, God. Come, come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul says, rejoice always, uh, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, and 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 all of us. It's the will of God for Christ Jesus in us. And then he says, don't quench the spirit, don't put it out. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. He writes this to the church at Thessalonica. He says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A lot of people... Uh, in my church come to me, especially young people who kind of have the world as their oyster and they can go anywhere and they can do anything and they're not married yet and they haven't chosen what career path they're going to do and they say, oh, I'm praying to know God's will in my life. I want to know what God wants for me. Um, and really what they mean by that is I want to know who God's got for me to marry, who that special perfect person is who's going to make me happy all my days and then they get married and they realize it doesn't quite work like that. Um, God puts us with someone who sharpens us and rubs the edges off us. Uh, or they mean, what's God's ministry for me? Well, you know, am I going to be the next Billy Graham or am I you know, going to be the next this person or that person, Finney or Wesley or whatever? Uh, or, you know, where does God want me to live or what car does God want me to drive and all of these kind of things. And what I say to them time and time again is, as I read the Bible, uh, and as I read Paul and what he said about these things, I don't think God's as concerned about those things as he is about some other things. I think God's a lot more concerned about your character than exactly where you live, what car you drive, what job you do. I think he's a lot more concerned about you being like Jesus. And uh, I said, you know, all you've got to do is you, 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 don't, you, don't need to, you don't need to sit there and pray and expect something just to fall from heaven although I really believe God can speak to people like that, and, I, and God's spoken to me like that before, but I say, no, open up the word of God if you want to know the will of God, because in the word of God, you'll find the will of God. And elsewhere in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul actually says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So I say, if you want to know the will of God, he wants you to be cleansed. 
He wants all sin to be delivered from your life. He wants you to walk holy as he is holy, that you would be a bright shining star in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. That's God's will for you. But Paul boils it down a little bit more because sanctification is not just the removal of that which is bad, but it's giving ourselves to that which is good. And he's given us a little bit more detail here. He says, I want you to always be rejoicing, not just when you feel like it, not just when things are going well, but I want you to walk with a, a heart posture that's always beholding Christ Jesus as holy, like the elders and like the angels around the throne of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. Worthy, you, worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Paul says, I want you to walk around with that heart posture. You might not be singing out loud all the time, but in your heart, you're beholding him as the King of Kings. You're beholding him as the Lord of Lords, that he's at the center of your vision all of the time. He says, I want you to be praying without ceasing. Of course, it's not practical for us to be on our knees in the secret place every moment of every day. We've got uh, family to be around and to care for, and we've got jobs to go to, and we've got practical things that we need to do. But what Paul is saying is, I want you to have this heart, heart posture where you're not depending on yourself all the time, but you're leaning on him for everything, where he's your source, you're abiding in him, and you're in continual dialogue with him. Whether you're driving the car, whether you're in the shower, whether you're at work, whether people are confronting you, whatever it may be, I want you to be talking vertically to him and horizontally to other people. It's a two-way dialogue. This is how I want you to walk. He says, I want you to be given thanks in all circumstances. Whatever's coming upon your life, whether you're at the mountaintop or you are in the valley, I want you to remember that Jesus has died for you and you've got a reason to be thankful. So Paul says to this church, uh, this is God's will for you. And what I love about Paul is that Paul wasn't just a guy who preached the word of God, he was a guy who lived the word of God. And uh, we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that Paul actually describes how he'd lived this lifestyle among them. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. He's saying, we're, we're praying for you unceasingly. We're praying for you all the time in a, in a posture of thanksgiving. He says, we constantly mention you in our prayers, constantly, regularly. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when I, when I remember you, believers, saints, my joy, my crown, it causes me to give thanks to the Lord my God. I remember you always before him. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. These people were struggling. Uh, folks were coming against them. Paul himself was kicked out of Thessalonica and he left this church behind. This, the, this group of Gentiles, because the Jews in the area, Thessalonica was, a, it was an important route for trade, and there was lots of Jewish traders there, and they were coming against Paul, and they kicked him out, as happened regularly with Paul when he went to preach the gospel in places. He left behind this church, and they were suffering at the hands of zealous Jews. He says, you were, you were in much affliction, but you became imitators of us with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Archaea. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those places, but your faith in God has gone everywhere. He says the way that you guys are posturing yourselves, the way that you're imitating us, is you've seen us live this lifestyle of continual rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving. He's saying it's a beacon to the whole of the region. People are hearing about your faith everywhere because of your attitude, your heart attitude towards me. So what I want you to see here is that Paul's letter, as so often it is, it's not a letter of correction here. This is a well-done letter. He said, you guys are doing well. And then we arrive in chapter 5 of his letter right at the end. And this exhortation that he gives them to always rejoice and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances, it's a, it's a well done, but keep on keeping on. Don't, don't give up. Don't stop, but keep rejoicing, keep praying, keep giving thanks, keep imitating us as we imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's saying, I don't want the fire to go out because the the fire of the Spirit is amongst you. You've received the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is, is in your midst and it's really encouraging other churches around the place. They were an example. It's not a rebuke, it's an encouragement. And God calls all of us to this kind of lifestyle. He calls us as communities to be communities of rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving on a continuous basis that the Spirit of God might be in our midst. That When believers come from outside, they would feel something different in here. They would hear something different, but they would tangibly experience something different in our midst, in this kingdom community of believers. And as I look at this... Uh, exhortation from Paul, which of course comes from God directly, this way he wants us to live, I think, you know, I I just, I really want to live like this in my life. I want to be a person who is beholding God every moment of every day, who's rejoicing, who's full of joy. Uh, I want to be a person who's praying unceasingly, and I I really want to have a thankful heart posture towards God. But as, as I reflect on how I do with this, um, the reality, if I'm honest, is somewhat different for me. I don't know about for you as you reflect on that. Um, you know, I, I, find, I find it hard to rejoice in the mornings because I've got two kids and they keep me up at night. And uh, I just say to people, you know, I'm not really good in the morning. Like, I'm an evening person. I'm not a morning person. I'm, I'm an evening person. So just don't expect me to be joyful in the morning. So, you know, I, I go to pray with a friend at 7 o'clock in the morning. I've got to get up at 20 past 6 and... Uh, sometimes I've had four, five hours sleep. And I just don't really want to talk to anyone, to be honest, in the morning. And, uh, you know, I'm the pastor and I'm supposed to be there with a smile on my face, but I just don't feel like that. And often it's not the case. So I'm not a morning person. But then as I reflected a bit more, I realized that I'm I'm not really a middle-of-the-day person either. (laughs) Um, Because I'm so busy doing stuff and I'm so busy trying to be productive as us in the West always are. We... You know, you go to the east and they're a bit more chilled out or you go to the med and it's a bit nicer. You know, they just take their time and they have a sleep in the middle of the day and all that kind of stuff. We haven't got time to sleep because we've got things to do and uh, we've got to be productive. So, like, don't expect me to spend time rejoicing in the day, right? Because if you interrupt me, you stop me doing something and I've got things to do. And then by the time I go home, well, I'm pretty tired because I've been up since 7 o'clock and I've been really productive during the day and I haven't really got time to be rejoicing and praying all the time when I go home. I just want to have my tea, I want to have a lie down, I want to have a little bit of time on my own and a bit of a chill out before I go to bed and I do repeat, repeat, repeat. 
the next day. I want to have a prayerful attitude all the time. I lead a prayer in ministry, but I find that I get so busy in organizing the prayer in ministry that often I don't have time to pray, which is a bit ironic, but it's the truth. I want to give thanks in all circumstances, and I can give thanks when things are going well, and sometimes when there's opposition and that kind of thing, I, I can still give thanks. But, you know, I came in here this morning, and a couple of people asked me about my son, because last time I was supposed to be here, my son got sick. I wasn't able to come and preach, and I was really disappointed about that. But my son gets sick regularly. If, if, he, gets a, if he gets a kind of viral chest thing, he ends up in hospital. And uh, there's nothing worse than when your kids are sick. And, you know, I've been in hospital with my son. He's three and a half. We've been in hospital like seven or eight times now. And uh, I struggle to give thanks when I'm in hospital with my little boy and I see him sick. I pray for breakthrough, but I struggle to have a heart posture of thanksgiving, if the truth be known in those circumstances. And you know, what I've realized is that this call that Paul calls us to, this will of God that he reveals to us, it, it's an impossible calling. It's, when we put all these things together, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, it's impossible. And I think what we've done is we've kind of split the Christian life up. We see the things that we're called to in the Bible, and I think that we've split the Christian life up into things that are impossible, that we know are impossible. So we know that healing the sick is impossible. And we, we admit that. We know that casting out demons is impossible. We can't do it in our own strength. We know that raising the dead is impossible. Only God can do that. The disciples were called to do that when they went out. I really believe that's for us today as well. And the truth is that often we don't pray for the sick because we can't do it in our own strength and we don't really believe they're going to be healed. So we don't do it. Or we don't, when we come across someone who's disturbed, we put it down to medical issues and we say, oh, I'm not going to try and cast out any demons because maybe that's a bit weird or maybe actually there's not going to be a change. Uh, and especially, I mean, I've never been around a dead person to pray for the dead to be raised. Uh, but I question myself, would I, would I even pray for someone who's dead to be raised? So I think we categorize the Christian life and say, well, we know these things are impossible and it takes a miracle of God for these things to happen. But I, I really think that we take the other commands of Paul, all of these, which are really radical commands, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And we boil these things down and we distill them down to going to church on a Sunday going to a home group on a Wednesday, being a little bit nicer than our neighbors. And we make these things attainable through our own willpower. When actually when we really see what Paul's calling us to and we reflect on how we measure up, we realize it's absolutely impossible for us to fulfill any of those things. In actual fact, rejoicing always praying without ceasing and giving thanks in all circumstances are just as impossible as raising the dead, healing the sick, and casting out demons. And we need to not minimize the radical nature of the whole call to be a Christian. And what we need to do is we need to recognize our inability to live any of it out in our own strength. In fact, the whole message of the Christian faith is to is that to, to live a godly life in any kind of measure is impossible for us because of the sin that dwells within us. 
Because by nature, we are not disposed to turn to God, to lean on God, to give thanks to God, to acknowledge God in all circumstances. But you know, at the center of the good news is this message that through Jesus Christ, God has made it possible for us to live the Christian life in fullness. A Christian is really simply somebody who confesses and believes, I can't do this. I can't do this, but he has done it. And all things are possible through him. All things are possible through him. God's, God's grace in the cross is to make us right with God. The, the, the theological word for that is justification. We're justified at the cross. Our debt is paid. We're made right with him. Our price, is la- our price has been paid. Our sins laid upon Christ. His righteousness comes to us so that we can inherit the kingdom of God. We can go to heaven one day and we can be part of the resurrection when Jesus returns upon the earth. But God's grace in Christ Jesus is also to empower us to live like God in Christ on the earth before we go to glory. And the theological word for that is sanctification. It's a, it's a cleansing. It's a becoming holy, becoming like him. Jesus said this. He, he put the standard so high when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not to live in, in, in cheap grace, but no, to walk in holiness. You must be perfect as your Father is perfect. And, and, and perfect can be translated there as mature. It doesn't mean that we're without fault. It doesn't mean that we're without sin. When we sin, we confess it, we bring it into the light. But it means that step by step, we're going from glory to glory, and we're becoming more like him. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way that he walked. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Being perfect, being mature, walking as Jesus walked, being the light of the world, encompassed in all of those things is this heart, heart posture of always rejoicing, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. It's to be a people empowered by the power and the fire of the Spirit to walk in the humility of Christ where we lean on him and we give thanks to him for all the good things that we have. So the question is, how does God's, in in, in practical terms, how does God's grace make this possible through us? Well, his, his grace makes it possible through the cross in the sense that when Jesus hung upon the cross and he took uh, the payment for your sins and my sins upon himself, the veil was torn and a way to heaven was made available to us. Uh, The veil was torn and we had access to the Father in heaven. But on top of that, when Jesus was then raised from the dead after three days, and then after 40 days he ascended to heaven, he poured out his spirit after a while upon his disciples. And in pouring out his spirit, he poured out gifts to the church, spiritual gifts, which would enable us as we exercise these gifts in our communities to live the way God has called us to live. In Ephesians 4.8, it says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, meaning he distributes his grace 
to us according to however he wills. Different people have different measures of grace for different things. He says, therefore, when it's, it says when he ascended on high, when he was ascended into heaven, he led a host of captives, we sung about that before, and he gave gifts to men. He poured out his spiritual gifts upon the church. So he returns to heaven, and he now empowers us through his grace in the form of spiritual gifts that he gives to the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that there's varieties, varieties of gifts. There's all different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. God gives us spiritual gifts so we can build each other up, making it possible to walk this kind of life he's calling us to. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Some people are gifted with wisdom. To others, knowledge. To others, faith. To others, gifts of healing. To another, the working of miracles. Not everybody has that gift. Some people have it. To others, prophecy. And then in Romans 12, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Meaning, don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't keep this gift to yourself, but exercise this gift that your brothers and sisters in the Lord may be built up. And then we have this famous verse in Ephesians 4, where Paul goes through all the offices of the church that were given as gifts, that, that God gave apostles, that he gave prophets, that he gave evangelists and shepherds, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the works of ministry. God didn't give apostles and pastors and evangelists and prophets and, 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 and these gifts in order that they would be the professionals and they would do all the stuff from the front and they would carry all of the load and they would just feed people and teach people and everybody else would turn up to church once or twice a week and enjoy themselves. No, the church is supposed to be a training school. He, he gave these gifts in order that those people would impart faith to others so that they could go out and do the works of ministry so that we could do it together, every member ministry, we could carry the load, we could build one another up, and we could extend the kingdom together. And he says these things were given for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, that's perfection, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God gives gifts according to his will, and his ultimate purpose is he wants to mature the church through these gifts that we could walk like Jesus, who was always talking to his father, who always had a posture of worship, who was always giving thanks, despite the fact that he was despised and he was rejected and he was afflicted and he was stricken. Paul commands each believer to operate in the gifts that he's given them. He says, look, don't be tempted to think that we don't need certain gifts in the church. Don't go through the gifts of God and pick some out and say, well, we like these gifts, so we're going to use these gifts. Or, or actually, we can do these, so we're going to do these. Or we're good at these, but we're not so good at the others, so we're going to pick and choose. No, we're not called to go through the gifts of God with a highlighter and just select the ones we like. We're called to exercise all of the gifts that God gives us. And that's why Paul says these things. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, he says, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
there are some people who say, well, because I'm not an evangelist, I don't belong, I'm not any use. Paul says, don't say that. Because I don't have the gift of prophecy, I'm not. No, no, Paul says, don't say that. You've been given gifts according to what God wills, according to his grace. Use them. Then he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I've got no need of you. No, again, the head to the feet, I've got no need of you. So Paul's saying, and don't say to other people, because you have that gift, which I don't really like very much, I've got no need of you. He says, no, you can't say that. God's given these gifts for the maturing of his church. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Every part of the body is needed. Every gift of God is needed for the church to be the church God's called it to be, for the church to walk in the fire and the power of the Spirit, for the church to be a bright, shining beacon that goes forth and builds up the people of God. If we neglect certain gifts, all right, the church will still function, the church will still remain in a certain form, but it won't be the spotless bride that God has called it to be. Now, it's interesting that just after this exhortation, Paul gives the Thessalonians to live this rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving lifestyle. He then immediately mentions the gift of prophecy. He says, do not quench the spirit. He's warning them. He's saying, the spirit's like a consuming fire in your midst. Don't put it out. To quench something is to, it's like with a fire, it's just to get an extinguisher and put it out. Paul's saying, don't do that. That's not God's will. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We could take these as two separate commands. Live like this, don't do this. And we could separate them. But I don't think that's what Paul was doing. I think he was putting these two things together. I don't think they're two separate commands, but they're linked in Paul's thinking. Prophecy was an essential means of grace for the church to walk in joy-filled praise, prayer, and thanksgiving in the midst of trial. The prophetic words that were given to them would build them up and would empower them to walk faithful to God and be the church God had called them to be. And Paul's warning them, don't despise these prophecies. Don't, don't reject this gift as being dispensable. Don't think, well, okay, we can, we'll receive the teaching, we'll receive the gift wisdom will receive the gifts of evangelism but actually we don't want the prophecy we we can be a godly people without that he says don't have that mindset don't be so proud that you think that you can be the people god's called you to be without this gift paul also emphasized his eagerness for the church in corinth to function in the prophetic he said to them in 1 corinthians 14 pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts all of them but then he said, especially that you may prophesy. So especially desire prophecy. He then said in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, now I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And then Paul goes on and he explains the reason for prophecy in the church. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. He says, the one who prophesies builds up the church, meaning the church will be weakened if prophecy is despised and rejected. 
little bit like a person running a marathon, you know, that able-bodied, you know, the, the, they're able to run a marathon, and they say, well, actually, I only need one leg to run this marathon. I, I don't need that part of the body, so we'll, we'll do away with that. I can, I can do this with one leg. Well, they might get so far, but pretty soon they're going to get tired. They might even scramble to the end, but I'm, I'll tell you, it's more painful. It's going to be a lot harder than if they had both their legs and the full body was working together. We hurt ourselves if we choose to say, I don't need the eye, I don't need a leg, I don't need an arm. We need to re receive all parts of the body. And uh, in my experience, I was, I was birthed into a church, not by choice, it just so happened that I was birthed into a church that exercised the gift of prophecy. They weren't too hot on some things, uh, to be honest, but they were good uh, with the gift of prophecy. And um, prophecy can come in different forms, and I'll put some of those things on, 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 your, on your handout. When Paul's prophesying to the church of Thessalonica in chapter 5, he's prophesying about the day of the Lord. He's saying, he's saying you guys aren't destined for wrath, but you're destined for salvation. And he talks about what's going to happen in the end in order that they would be built up and encouraged. But then in the book of Acts, we see Paul receiving a personal prophecy for his life where uh, Agabus came to him and told him that he was going to be bound when he went to Jerusalem. So Paul knew that was God's plan for him. And um, that would sustain him through the trial. He went to Jerusalem anyway. And in my life, I've, I've experienced specific personal prophecies that have really helped me in hard times. Um, when, I, when I joined the church that I was in, it was, I was only two weeks down the track before somebody prophesied into my life. And uh, at the time, uh, I would barely speak to anyone in the church. Uh, I'd never prayed in front of anybody. There was nothing to lead anyone to believe that I would be in Christian ministry, I can assure you of that. And uh, this person, after two weeks, prophesied to me and said, you are going to be fast-tracked into Christian leadership. Really? Me? Like, I can't even pray in front of anybody. What, what on earth are you on about? God's saying you're going to be fast-tracked into Christian leadership. Now, at the time, I, was, I had a good career. I, I was earning quite a bit of money. I had a nice company car. Um, I was doing really well for myself and what I was in, and I had no real desire to be in Christian leadership. But then when that call came upon my life, a couple of years later, that prophecy enabled me to lay my career down. It empowered me to lay my career down and give myself to God's purposes for my life. And uh, I took up the role of leading street pastors in 2008, which two years after I became a Christian. And um, I was only a year in the street pastors where I went on a retreat and God spoke to me really, really clearly. And because uh, I was saying to the Lord, is, is, is this what you've got for my life? Is this what you want me to do for you, Lord? And the Lord spoke really clear and he said, he said no, the call in your life, Sam, is to establish a house of prayer. Now, I didn't like prayer meetings. I wasn't a praying person. He said, this is the call in your life, to establish a house of prayer. And I said to the Lord, how on earth am I going to do that? Like, I hate praying. And, well, I didn't hate praying, but I wasn't very good at praying. Couldn't do it for more than two minutes. And the Lord said to me really clearly, he said, I'm going to give you a wife with this calling upon her life. He named to me specifically two people that he was going to send. He said, I'm then going to give you a building. He said, and then when the people come, you'll know it's my doing and not your doing. 
And uh, I, was, I was really content in doing street passes at the time, so that was a bit of a shock to me. A couple of years later, I met my wife. That first word was fulfilled when I found out we got together really quickly and got married really quickly, but in the midst of that hurried process, uh, I found out that she had that call upon her life for 10 years uh, to be in a house of prayer. So we started a prayer meeting in our home, and about six months down the line, after that prayer meeting started, we hadn't told anybody we were doing it. That couple that the Lord spoke to me about came to us. They were living in Kenton at the time. They said, can we come and see you? They came to us and they said, uh, the Lord's called us to come and move to Elzig, which is a bit crazy. Um, <laughs> their parents weren't too happy. And, um, and join you in whatever you're doing. They didn't even know what we were doing. So I thought, okay, the Lord's doing something here. And um, so the four of us started meeting. And then out of the blue again, we were offered a building about 100 yards away from where I live. And uh, my father-in-law actually came to me and said, look, um, do you want to come and do your prayer meetings? He knew about them by this point. Do you want to come and do your prayer meetings in our building? So we did that. Um, and everything started to kind of fall into place. And then in 2012, I was asked if I would lead that church where the building was. And uh, it was a church of eight people in Elzig, no salary, no nothing. It was not an attractive proposition. But because of the prophetic words I'd received, I decided to do that kind of bivocationally for a while. So I did that for two years, and it was really difficult doing street pastors and also uh, leading the church at the same time. Just splitting your mind between the two was just impossible. And um, it was after a couple of years, we felt that it was righteous to pray to the Lord and say to the Lord, should I leave street pastors behind and, and give myself to the church? Knowing full well that we had a mortgage, we had bills, uh, there's no way we could do it unless the Lord came through for us because Street Pastors was my salary at the time. And uh, we prayed this one night. It was a Thursday night. I remember it vividly. And we said to the Lord, Lord, we need to know if, um, if I'm supposed to give myself to the church and leave Street Pastors behind. The next morning I woke up and uh, it's a bit embarrassing really, but, it, but, but it is, is, is I'm in the habit of doing, just kind of reached for my phone and went on Facebook straight away, as I think a lot of us probably do we admit it, and uh, I'm not on Facebook now, but that's what I used to do. And I went on Facebook, and I had a message on Facebook. And I didn't have one the night before, so I thought, oh, who's that from? And I clicked on this message, and it was from a guy I'd not seen for about three months, a young guy in his early 20s at a church in Sunderland. And he sent me this message, and he said, I hope, Sam, I really hope you don't mind me contacting you, but I've got a revelation of the Lord uh, for you. God said something to me, and I need to share this with you, um, if I could be so bold. And it said, the Lord wants to know when are you going to lay down what you're doing and give yourself to the people he's called you to serve? So I wake Liz up. Liz, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. You know, what do you mean it's the Lord? Look, look. So I showed her that, and um, that blew me away. And uh, <clears throat> I just knew it was God. And uh, in my disobedience, I still didn't leave street pastors because I didn't have enough faith for the money. So six months go by, and we kind of, to be honest, we just disobeyed the word. And um, we're a bit further down the line, and I knew that I disobeyed the word, and it was just this one night again I'd said to Liz, look, I, re look, I know it's a lack of faith, Liz. Like, God's spoken to us. I said, let's just pray again and ask the Lord to confirm it for us, which is a bit naughty, really. I should have just done it. But I said, we prayed, and I said, okay, Lord, like, I need to know you're going to provide for that financially because... How else are we going to survive? And we prayed. And literally again, not a word of a lie, the next morning, 
I had a text message from the same lad. I'd not seen him for months and months and months. Young guy in Sunderland. And uh, his text message said, Sam, the Lord wants you to know you're not to worry about money. And uh, just as a token to show you how the Lord's going to provide for you, I've set up a 50-pound standing order into your bank account every month. And we, we weren't asking anybody for money at the time. And um, so I, I did it, and I laid, I laid that down, and I, I started leading the church. And uh, f- for a while, the, the church didn't grow at all. So it was like 10 of us, 11 of us, 12 of us. And um, then at the beginning of 2015, this guy came from Cumbria who'd heard about us. And I was really surprised he came to our little church, but he felt the Lord call him to travel from Cumbria to visit our church. And he came to our prayer room and he stood up at one of our prayer meetings and he said, the Lord's calling me to prophesy that the level is about to increase and he's going to start sending people to you right away. So I thought, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see if that happens, because it hasn't happened so far. He went. Two weeks later, a 70-odd-year-old lady, I can't remember, I don't know exactly how old she is, came from Stockton. The Lord had told her four weeks earlier to sell her house in Stockton, to move to Benwell. She doesn't know anybody in Benwell. And join our church. And the Lord had given her Isaiah 42 when she was in Stockton, and she knew it was the Lord, and her pastor there tried, and her family tried to convince her not to do it, but she knew it was the Lord, and she moved. And she came to our church, and we didn't know that the word was Isaiah 42. And the first morning she was in our church, um, somebody read Isaiah 42 from the front, and she started shaking. She's like, that's the word, that's the word. And, um, and it went on, and it goes on from there, and, 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 and God started sending people. And I'm just sharing these things with you. I know I'm kind of laboring this a bit, but... I, I'm just sharing these things with you to say that in my life, the Lord has sustained us through what have been difficult periods. We've had a really, really tough three or four years, and I, I'm not going to go into that, but it's, it's been a really hard time. And the Lord has sustained us through the gift of prophecy in that time. And um, the Lord desires to sustain his church through this gift. Now, I've, I've given a few examples on the sheets, on the handouts of, of of prophecy and what New Testament prophecy is and what it can be. And I would just encourage you to look through those and unpack those and, and weigh those up against Scripture. Um, but I just want to say, lastly, you know, that the temptation to despise prophecy is, is really strong. And um, part of the reason we're, we're tempted to despise prophecy is because we see prophecy misused and abused. And it can be used to control and it can be used to manipulate. But I just want to say with that, so can teaching. And we have bad teachers, but we don't throw out teaching. We have bad evangelists, but we don't throw out evangelism. And Paul specifically seems to be driving this home. Just because you see prophecy abused and misused, and you see some people who are a bit wacky who prophesy, okay, don't throw the baby of good prophecy out with the bathwater of bad prophecy. But he says, hold fast to what is good because you're going to need that if you're going to be the church I've called you to be and abstain from every form of evil. To call to maturity, don't just throw it out and reject it. He says, just weigh what is good. And again, what I've done is on the sheets, I've, I've listed several ways in our church that we use to weigh prophecy. I don't have time to go through all of these. It would take a couple of sermons in its own right. 
But uh, there's a number of questions we would ask if someone says, the Lord has said to me this. And we encourage people never to say, thus saith the Lord, as you would have in the Old Testament, but feel the Lord is saying this to me in order that we can wait as a community. These are some of the questions that we use. Um, but I just want to kind of give us a final exhortation that if, if we want to be a church together as worshipers and prayers and thanksgivers, we need the prophetic word to sustain us. We need the Lord to be speaking to us. We need the living God to be imparting his word to us. And we need to receive it and desire it and not despise it when it's used badly, but in maturity root out the bad and hold on to that which is good. Could we stand together and, and, and just pray? Paul says, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. He says, I desire that you all speak in tongues, but even more that you may prophesy. And um, I'm just going to ask you to concentrate on yourself and not really look at anybody else and what they're doing. Um, and just, you speak to the Lord. But if you feel that you eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, I'm, I'm just going to encourage you to do something before the Lord. Just maybe hold your hands out and say to the Lord, Maybe I've, I've not operated in this before. I've, I've not exercised this before. But this is something that I desire from you. Maybe I don't fully understand it. But Lord, if this is from you, I desire this. I'm going to encourage you to do that. And I'm going to pray um, for the Lord to give that gift in the church. That the church might be built up. And Jesus may be glorified. Father, we bless your name today. We want to be a people who shine forth the light of Christ. Lord, we want to be a people who draw near to you in prayer, in worship. We want to be a people with thankful hearts. Father, I ask for those, Lord, who are speaking to you now and saying, I desire this gift. Father, I pray that you would impart that gift. I ask, Father, that it would come upon them and they would be faithful to step out in it and use it for your glory, to build up your church, to impart your timely word, Father, for people who need to receive it. Father, I ask that you would build up this church. I pray you would strengthen this church. Father, I love this church not as much as you love this church. God, I ask that the Spirit of God would come upon my brothers and sisters and empower them, strengthen them, sustain them, build them up to be the people you've called them to be. In Jesus' name.